We're working through um, the letter of Paul to Titus, as you know. So if you would turn with me, please, to page 998. In the second part of chapter 2, Paul's letter to Titus. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that our hope in life and death is Christ alone, that we have confidence in him, that he will keep us to the end. As we come under your word this evening, we pray that you would speak to us, that you would guide our thoughts and our words to be acceptable in your sight, that you would speak to each one of us and change us and enable us and encourage us to be the people you want us to be in the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. So, Titus chapter 2, beginning at verse 11, verses 11 to 15, page 998. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. I'm sure at some time you must have looked at a a floor plan of a building, showing the various rooms and spaces in a building, maybe of a flat or an apartment or a house or perhaps of a public building. A plan like that is in two dimensions and having seen the plan you might look at a three-dimensional image or drawing of the building. It's the same building but suddenly you see how the spaces on the various floors can fit together and work together. How the rooms on the different floors can be used, how you might walk around the whole building. In three dimensions, with a new dimension, it all makes sense. The whole building seems to have a a purpose and a meaning that you don't always get from a two-dimensional drawing. It's the same thing if you look at a map in two dimensions on paper or even on your phone. I'm speaking to those who probably don't look at maps on pieces of paper. But if after that you then look at a three-dimensional model of the same area, the picture of what you're looking at is changed. You see the contours of the landscape, what you might see from a particular vantage point. You see the hills and the valleys, how you might go from one place to another, how easy or difficult a journey might be across that landscape. Years ago, I went on some walking holidays with a very good friend. He was very fit, a very keen walker. 
and I just about managed to tag along with him a few paces behind. One of the holidays was walking through the Algoya Alps in Austria one August, and we walked from village to village. Each night we found a and b to stay in. It was all very unplanned in one sense. One morning he looked at the two-dimensional map to see where the next village was that we were aiming to get to because we had to get back to Zurich in Switzerland by a certain date to get a flight back to London. He looked at the map and he said the quickest way to the next village was in a straight line over some hills. Well, I looked at the map and said to him, Charlie, that's not a hill, that's the Grunhorn Mountain, a mountain that is over 3,000 metres high. If you could see it in 3D, you would see that going up and down 3,000 metres is not very different from staying in the valley and going west and then east three kilometres, which is the same distance. And that would be much less arduous and dangerous. Anyway, he was a great enthusiast and somehow he persuaded me. Then we went over the Grunhorn, through the tree line, into the permanent snow that lies on the top of the mountain. And I'd gone on holiday in a sports jacket and jeans and trainers, not in mountaineering gear. I think it was probably a very stupid thing for us to do, but we survived somehow. I think we probably walked further going over the mountain than if we'd stayed in the valley. If only I'd been able to show him the map in 3D, in three dimensions, perhaps it would have made the point. Many people have lives that are in two dimensions. They may have a life plan. By the time I'm 30, I want to be married and own a flat, or to have reached this level in my career, so that by the time I'm 50, I'll be at the top of the ladder. People have goals based on career or family life, or experiences, or on getting money, or fame, or success, or power. And these are not necessarily bad things in themselves, but they are life in two dimensions. And the hard truth for all human beings is that our lives are short, and for most of us, after we've gone, what we may or may not have achieved is soon forgotten. But for the Christian, there is another dimension to life. The Christian has been called to eternal life under the kingship of God. It's not wrong to pursue things that are part of normal living. It's not wrong to have a life plan or to be ambitious in your career. But for the Christian, there is now a new dimension to life. It's no longer like the plan of the building or of the mountain in two dimensions. Now there is another dimension to life. And looking at life with that new dimension, we see that we have a destination, a goal that is of a overriding importance that somebody in 2D wouldn't see. And Paul is writing here to uh, Titus, who is head of the church in Crete, to say that Christians must behave in a special way. And you might ask why that is. And the reason is that because Christians are special people. They have been called to faith in Christ, called to be part of God's people. They are the end product of God's long-term plan of salvation. So last week we looked at the first ten verses in chapter 2, in which Paul set out what we are to do in life, how we are to conduct ourselves to honour God, 
And Paul has set out the application first, and now in the passage we read, he comes to the gospel basis for what he said, to the theological reasons behind the behaviour he has set out. And Paul isn't saying that you shouldn't live in the world with everyone else. He's not saying that you don't have to work and deal with all the challenges and problems of normal everyday life. He's not saying that it's wrong to set goals and to achieve things. He's not saying the Christian has to drop out and go and live in a tent or a cave. We are called to live in society and to serve God there. But we are called to live in the way that Paul has described in those first ten verses. In our society today, to some great extent, we can choose what to do. But how we do it, our behaviour and our attitudes are not optional for the Christian. It's compulsory for us to behave in a way that is appropriate to our faith. And Paul has set out in the first part of the chapter for each category of person how we are to behave as Christians. And to enforce that in the final verse we read, verse 15, Paul gives Titus a command. So after describing the behaviour he wishes to see in the first ten verses and the reasons for it, he commands Titus to make sure that these standards of conduct are implemented and upheld by the Christian community in Crete. And they are to follow these instructions willingly and faithfully. It's not meant to be a struggle for Titus, but Titus is to exhort and rebuke with all the authority delegated to him by Paul as an apostle. No one is to disregard Titus. So this is important. Paul expects these instructions to be followed. And they're instructions for us today as well. So what is the new dimension for the Christian? What is different for the Christian's life from that of the non-Christian? The big difference between a non-Christian's life and a Christian's life is, Paul writes, that the grace of God has appeared. Christ has come. God has a purpose for us beyond merely human achievements. And that purpose derives from the grace of God achieved by Jesus through his incarnation, his taking on human flesh, and by his death and resurrection. God's grace to us is his love and goodwill towards us, shown in his free, sovereign decision to save us from sin and death by the self-sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, bringing us into relationship with him as his people through faith in Jesus, and by giving us the Holy Spirit to make us the people he wants us to be, to purify us, to be his people, a people for his intimate family possession, to be with him in his glory for eternity in the new heaven and earth. God's grace is the reason we are to live a godly and upright life, a life that is set apart for God. I would like to look at how the grace of God applies to the Christian's life in three ways. First, bringing salvation in verse 11. Second, training in righteousness in verse 12. And third, waiting for our blessed hope in verses 13 to 14. First, bringing salvation in verse 11. 
God's grace to us appears only through Christ in his life, death and resurrection for us. It doesn't appear in any other way. He is the only means by which God's grace can be given to us to achieve our salvation. Jesus took on human flesh at his birth so that he could bear our sins on the cross and pay the price of death that we should have paid. If he had not become human, his self-sacrifice would not have been effective to save us. The Christian is to know and to be fully assured that Christ has come as our Saviour. But in doing so, he became fully man, as well as remaining fully God. Without Christ appearing as a man and achieving his life's work, God's grace that Paul talks about here wouldn't have appeared or have been applied to our lives. Without Jesus becoming man, it just wouldn't have worked. We were on holiday about the week before, the week that's just gone. And uh, while we were away, the, the fridge light in the apartment we were staying in stopped working. It didn't make much sense. Why has the light stopped working? So I looked at the switch mechanism, I looked at the light. And then I thought I'd just trace the power lead back to the socket. And someone had switched the power off. So I switched it back on, it was a very simple thing, and everything worked again. The light worked, the fridge worked. Without power, the fridge and the light didn't work. Without Jesus coming among us as a man, the grace of God wouldn't have come to us. God's salvation wouldn't have been applied to us. As a man, Jesus lived a sinless life, the perfect life that we are unable to live as we are born in sin. Jesus as the sinless man was able to take our sins upon himself, upon the cross, to redeem us by his death, paying the price of our sin that we should have paid, so that all whom God calls to faith in Christ are saved by faith in him, by the grace of God, and brought to God in union with Christ. By the way, the phrase bringing salvation for all people in verse 11 shouldn't be misunderstood as meaning that all people will be saved. We always have to read the Bible in the context of other scriptures within the Bible. And we know from other scriptures that God doesn't save everyone. But he only saves those whom he chooses and whom he calls to faith in the Lord Jesus. What the phrase means is that salvation has been brought to all people in the sense that salvation has come to people from every part of society just as Paul has set out in the first ten verses here, and from every race and every nation, every tribe and every tongue, so that salvation through faith in the Lord Jesus is not just for one part of society or for people from one particular nation or people of one ethnicity or one particular country, but for people from all nations and all races and places across the world. Second, training in righteousness, verse 12. By the grace of God, when we are called to faith in Christ and become Christians, we are given the Holy Spirit who begins working in us the work of sanctification, a work in which we work together with the Holy Spirit. By the Holy Spirit, it is the grace of God that trains us to godliness, to live our lives aright, training us and enabling us to be godly. God works in our lives 
to make us the people that he wants us to be, to make us more and more like Jesus. The grace of God that saves us through the call to faith in Christ also instructs us to live in a new way. If you have received saving grace, it doesn't stop there. You also have to be a pupil, a student of training grace. And this change of life is rooted both in the atonement, as Paul writes about in verse 14, looking back to Christ's death for us on the cross, and also in the expectation of his returning glory in verse 13, as the judge of all creation, with all the power and might of Almighty God, when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is God. Training grace, which is at work in all Christians, works in two ways. The first part of training grace is to teach us to say no to ungodliness, no to sin. If there are things in our lives, in our behaviour, that are unsuitable for our lives as Christians, we have to renounce them. We have to turn our back on them. We have to say no. These might be obvious sins in terms of our conduct, and really they would be the flip side of what Paul has set out in the first ten verses of this chapter. But they would include immorality of any kind, a lack of self-control, any action where we put ourselves and our interests first instead of God's will as set out in the Bible. The great reformer John Calvin wrote about this, this text. He wrote this. He includes in this turning our back on wrong things. He says it includes not only the superstitions in which men have erred, but the irreligious neglect of God that prevails among men until they have been enlightened by the knowledge of the truth. So the first part of training grace is to say no to ungodliness. The second part of training grace is to say yes to godliness. Godliness, as we read here, is to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives. We are to live towards all people in a way in which self-control and righteousness are shown in all our actions as a reflection of our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So godliness is partly about how we live with others, but it's also about how we live towards God in worship and in joyful love. We need both to be living in a godly way, to be living in a right way before God. You can't live faithfully towards God without living righteously towards your fellow human beings. And the words Paul uses here in the present age stress that this godliness is not just a future goal. This is not just something to say, well, I'll be godly sometime in the future. But it's to be lived out here and now. Like most training, this training in godliness is for a purpose. Now you might take a course or study for a qualification for the purpose of taking the next step in your career or to be qualified or authorised to do a certain kind of work. In the same way, training grace is to deepen our relationship with God, to grow in our faith, to enable our evangelism, so that the gospel is not just on our lips, but also is visible in our lives, 
so that we are zealous and enthusiastic for carrying out the will of God. But the training grace of God is not just for the here and now, but it's also to equip us for heaven, where we will be with God forever, to make us increasingly pure and fit to live in eternity with the Holy God. Christ has redeemed us by his death, and our work with the Holy Spirit is that we be purified for God's possession now and into eternity. Third, waiting for our blessed hope, verses 13 and 14. Talking of the present age leads Paul to refer to the future return of Christ in verse 13. The reason why we are to be trained in righteousness in our lives now is not only because Christ has died and risen to bring us salvation, but also because he is coming again in glory, a glory in which as his trained and purified people we will share, a glory that will far exceed anything that we can see or imagine on the earth. This is the ultimate fulfilment of God's covenant with his chosen people, from Eden and the promise of the seed through Abraham and his successors. Although the Old Testament looked forward to Jesus' life on earth as Messiah, the prophecies about him also point forward to the eternal fulfilment of God's covenant of grace and the one who is the ultimate culmination of the three offices of the Old Testament, fulfilled now and into, and into eternity in Christ as the final and ultimate prophet, the final and ultimate and everlasting priest, and the final and supreme king. Christ is called Emmanuel in Isaiah verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 14, God with us. In Emmanuel Church, that's the name we have of the church, God with us. And his offices are accomplished by his completed work in his death and resurrection. And he is established into eternity as the Messiah, God's faithful servant, the only saviour and sustainer of his people. He is the goal of our training. Our blessed hope, that Paul writes here, refers to his second coming, the appearing of the glory of our great God and saviour, Jesus Christ. That is the culmination of God's promises to his people throughout history. And for us it is something that we hope for, or we should hope for, more than anything else. It is the goal of our lives in three dimensions, something we can meditate on, and not only desire, but long for, as the ultimate fulfilment of our faith. If I were to say to you, you'll have to wait for something. If you're a younger person, your parents might say, I'm sorry, you'll have to wait. You'll have to wait till you're eight or 12 or whatever age it may be. You'll have to wait. That's really frustrating, isn't it? Even as grown-ups, we have to wait for things. We might have to wait for a parcel to be delivered and it never seems to come on time. Or we have to wait for a bus or a train and they seem to be late. Often we wait anxiously or with frustration. If something is late, we become angry, we get cross. Waiting seems to be such a waste of time. Why is Paul talking about waiting? Well, the Greek word here for waiting means waiting with eagerness, eagerly expecting 
the return of Christ as part of our training in righteousness, setting our minds on the truth of Christ's return in eager expectation impels us to holiness, knowing that at his return and the glory of God, we will stand before him, our training finished, our remaking to be like him at last completed. Paul describes Jesus as our great God and Saviour. And this is not by any means the only place in the Bible where Jesus is stated to be God. I'll give you a few examples. Your homework is to go and see if you can find others. You will. So for instance in John chapter 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Again in John's Gospel, chapter 20, Thomas worships Jesus with the words, My Lord and my God. In Isaiah 9, verse 6, the Redeemer is called the Mighty God. These are words we often say at Christmas. In Romans 9, verse 5, Paul wrote, To Israel belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8, we read, But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. We're getting into a challenging area, the great mystery of the Trinity, that God is three in one, that Christ is God. How can Jesus be God if the Father is God and the Holy Spirit is also God? How does it work? We worship a God who is three persons, but all of the same substance. Jesus is God, and he will return in glory, the glory of the three-in-one God, the triune God, to establish the new heaven and earth, the new creation, which will last forever in the glory of God. So Jesus' return is certain. Paul's writing, Jesus will come again. And certainty about the future enables us to be constant in the present. The final anchor of Paul's call to godliness in verse 14 is that it was Jesus' purpose from the beginning that we become godly people. And not just in eternity, that we begin our training in godliness here and now. He offered himself for us to redeem us from slavery to sin and death, to purchase us as a people for his own possession, but also to make us holy, not just in the future, but that begins now. To be his people, bought by his death, we must be holy as he is holy. It is by his offering of himself for us that we have newness of life. It is by his death that we have been consecrated to good works, that we have been purified from sin. To forsake godliness would be to despise the sacrifice of Christ and to fall back into the very stains from which we have been purged by his death for us. This redemption of us through faith in Christ is the fulfilment of God's wonderful, great, fantastic plan for his covenant people from the beginning, as set out in the Old Testament. And Paul is conscious of that and quotes verses that remind us of the Old Testament promises of God to save his covenant people. So, for instance, the phrase to redeem us from all lawlessness is a very close resemblance of Psalm 130 verse 8 
in which God, in his steadfast love, will redeem his people from all their iniquities. When he describes us as a people for his own possession, he echoes Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, in which God says that his covenant people will be his treasured possession. And in Malachi chapter 3, verse 17, in which God says that his people, named in the book of remembrance, the book of life, written before him, will be his as his treasured and precious possession. We are God's prized and treasured possession. And as part of our calling as God's faithful covenant people, we are to be zealous for good works. We are to live today in a godly way. There is no room in this letter or in any of the Gospels for claiming to be redeemed by the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ while providing no evidence of practical changes in our lives here and now. And this is fully set out in the letter of James in chapter 2, which if you're at Emmanuel Church Brentford, we will be looking at next Sunday morning. All of this sets out the now and not yet of Christian faith. We're sure of our redemption, but there are things that are yet to be established and achieved for us. We live between the two appearings of Christ. He has appeared by the grace of God, in verse 11 we read, in his incarnation and his ministry and his death and resurrection for us. And in verse 13, we await his appearing in glory to inaugurate the new creation, the new heaven and earth. So although we live in the certain knowledge that we are saved by his death and resurrection, by the grace of God, we also look forward in joyful assurance to the certain and blessed hope of his coming again in glory to bring about the recreation of the world in which, as his trained and purified people, the people of his own treasured possession, united with him, members of his body, we will rule with him and share in his mind-blowing glory. And here and now, God expects us to be distinctive, to be zealous for good works in the service of the one whose possession we have become, to live faithful lives that honour Christ, who has won salvation for us, to be willing trainees in righteousness and godliness, to be pure in our waiting, joyful in our blessed hope, always looking to the new dimension of the fulfilment of God's great plan of salvation in eager expectation of the glorious return of Christ, our God and our Saviour. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these great assurances that by faith in the Lord Jesus you have saved and rescued us from sin and death and also for these challenges that we are to be trained in godliness and righteousness. We pray that you would enable us to wait for the coming of the Lord Jesus in eager expectation to live joyfully before you now always looking to you for our strength and our help and our guidance. We commit ourselves to you and ask that you would watch over each one of us and enable us to live as your faithful people.